Um, I'm going to have you guys introduce yourself. We're going to start at the far end and work our way this way. Share with us kind of your name, why you're here, all that stuff. Well, kind of my name is Jenna Allen. (laughs) Yes, Mrs. Allen. (laughs) That's right. right. Um, I am an elementary school assistant principal and was in the classroom for 14 years prior to that. And um, despite Aaron's statement that we're all experts in the field of technology, I would say that disclaimer does not apply to me. I'm definitely not an expert in the field of technology. Um, I'm actually a Luddite. You're an expert in your field. But I'm an expert in my field, which is um, elementary school children and um, the overall impact that I've seen in their lives from technology. So that's me. Hello, everyone. I'm Garrett. Um, I am up here, I believe, because I work in artificial intelligence. So right now I work for AWS's AI research organization. AWS is? um, Amazon Web Services. There you go. So um, yeah, that's the non-bookstore side of Amazon. Mm. And and in the past, I also worked in big data advertising for Amazon, as well as software for tech defense stuff. And so maybe you'll have questions in those areas, maybe not. Garrett knows a lot of stuff. My name is Phil Neal. I've uh, been working in software just about 15 years now. feels like forever. Uh, mostly in the areas of, of data collection, uh, user interaction for lots of different uh, uses, um, a lot of customer service work and things like that. Um, we were joking earlier, I am that guy that tries to get you to register your devices or does the thing where it asks you about cookies and and whether or not you want to collect those boxes. So I spent a lot of time thinking about um, how do we help people understand what they're agreeing to? Um, how do we help people um, kind of voluntarily provide information and make that valuable to them and make it so that uh, we're using it the right way? So a lot of thoughts there and a lot of time spent working with lawyers too. That's fun. I'm Krista Chaco, and prior to our family moving here, Um, I worked in IT consulting with two different firms in Chicago, um, and we, my last company, we actually built mobile apps for um, enterprises, banks, and um, food distributors, so big kind of clients. Um, Most of our apps were internal, so ones that people would use inside their own company, but several were also customer-facing. So that's what I did. Okay. Now the fun question. I told them I was going to ask them a fun question, and I think they're all worried. What is your favorite gadget? Piece of technology, some kind of, something that you like, you know, it could be like a, a toaster, it could be your phone, it could be some piece of technology that's kind of a gadget that you love the most. I love my laptop. <laughs> <laughs> Straight up. Straight up. Okay. Yep. Okay. Great. I love my AirPods. Oh. And I, you can't use them really without a phone, but if I probably would if I could. If you could. And even just one ear. You only use AirPods with one oh, ear? Like when I'm outside walking so oh. I can be around and also. Oh, okay. Okay, good. Yes. Podcasts or music? Both. Okay. Okay. You got one? <laughs> <laughs> when you first said gadget, I was thinking kitchen. 
Like, yeah, mm, kitchen, yeah, kitchen like gadgets are fine. What do I use in the kitchen? <clears throat> kitchen gadgets are fine. I don't have a favorite piece of technology. I, I literally have a phone. Okay. And so a computer. By default, your phone <laughs> is work. the favorite? Sure. <laughs> Not really? Okay. Sure. All right, fair. So maybe it's because I work on technology, like screen all day long, but I love working on cars when I'm working mm. on technology. And I've got this little thing that, and for the car folks out there, uh, it's ODB2. Um, reader that lets me see what my car is doing, which is kind of dangerous because I don't know how to fix all the things that my car is doing, but at least I know there's a problem, so I like that. Great. Okay. Okay, now uh, kind of a serious kickoff question, and hopefully this will fuel other ones coming in or it'll be a very short night. Um, what is one thing in, the, in like thinking about tech, one thing that you're excited about or, or optimistic about, and then one thing that you're like, not. You know, one, one, one exciting thing, one kind of warning thing. So I love the way technology, especially in this last couple of years, lets us collaborate a little bit better, right? So the way we can, and Chris and I were talking about this as we were getting a class ready, like that we can work on a shared piece of information together at the same time. It's, it's pretty cool, right? We can be creative together and just kind of interact in real natural ways. That, that's pretty cool. Um, I think in terms of what, what makes me nervous, um, I think that, and again, we, we talked a little bit about this in a class today, I think that um, the people understanding really how um, how things are being crafted to, to pull our attention. I think that worries me a little bit. I don't think people realize how intentional design is now and uh, really keying into how our, main, our brains work, so. Yeah, I think similarly, um, I was actually teaching during um, the kind of the quarter that was shut down, um, sixth grade. and. Um, I was really grateful for the ability to connect with my students and to continue to teach. Um, I think there were some beautiful things that came out of that, even in terms of collaboration with, um, saw people singing and doing music together, which I thought was um, really lovely. Um, and I'm grateful for the times when, you know, my, my kids are out of town or overseas or whatever, that I can still continue to connect with them. Um, so I'm, I'm really grateful for those things. Um, I guess um, Aaron encouraged us today that he felt like at his session that that we no longer have to continue or convince parents the, of the dangers of technology. Um, I hope that is true. I don't know that it is because I still see lots of um, littles, little littles with um, babies basically a computer in their hands and um, screens in front of them. And I would definitely say I continue to see an, an impact and, um, and that it, it's, not, um, it's not hyperbole to say that there's a real um, threat and danger out there to our children. So that's what I'm most nervous about. Okay. I'll say that the ability for the world's information to be at our fingertips is amazingly valuable. And so with these new, I'll keep my question kind of related to artificial intelligence, with some of these new algorithms, the ability to create amazing new things I think is going to be extremely valuable. 
Um, and the major danger there is that there can be dependency created in such a way that we can learn, lose the ability to like think critically mm. or to, um, in a lot of ways, these tools are best used, I would say, if you learn how to do it manually first yeah. and then you are accelerated by the tool. And, um, but there's, I think all of us have a core desire to just wanna do it the easy way from the beginning. And so that's the risk that I'm afraid of. I think the exciting part, especially around data, is when you can make, especially with medical and like medical connections, where you can all of a sudden connect the dots of like, oh, these are risk factors, and this leads to just people having healthier lives, healthy, healthier, just like outcomes um, or preventative things, which is a little bit, which is just kind of cool, and you can't connect all the data across like a country and cultures um, without that. Um, but I think the what is, always makes me nervous is um, the lack of prolonged attention and delayed gratification, um, mm. even in my own self. And I'm like, I can't sit that still so long. Why can't I sit still? And then to extrapolate that um, to kids and just like how long our attention is um, and that idea of like, oh, but once I'm an adult, I can buy whatever I want and with like a tap. Mm -hmm. Without kind of thinking through, like, oh, do I actually need that? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Thank you, Amazon. It can be here in six hours. Yep. Good. Okay. Um, we're gonna start. We're gonna dump, jump straight into the deep end with a question for primarily for you, I think, Garrett. Um, <clears throat> earlier this year, supposedly a thousand technology leaders signed an open letter requesting a pause in further development of advanced AI. Um, just share your thoughts, but maybe first, can you give us a like two minute AI primer? Sure. Okay. Um, I'm asking for a friend. Asking for a friend, <laughs> great. Well, I'll answer it for your friend. I'll try at least. Um, so where I might start is artificial intelligence is more or less this area where we're trying to make machines that um, can do some of the um, take some of the actions or produce some of the products or generate some of the information that so far we've ascribed to human, requiring human intellect, let's say. And all those words are loaded, so it's hard to say like exactly yeah. what this means. Yeah. Um, we're in a season very suddenly in the last few years called generative AI, where we now have these models, these things, maybe you've heard the term GPT floating around that can um, write freeform text in a way that seems extremely valuable, generate essays, converse with you as well as build things like images that are photorealistic in ways you're interested in. And there's things like AI generating music, AI generating videos, AI generating personas are now very suddenly like on the immediate horizon. Um, so that's more or less what I'm thinking when I yeah. answer this sort of question. Yeah, and as I've talked to you, you know, like I, I assume that to some degree I represent most people here, like that sounds terrifying, but you're not, I mean, there, there's stuff that is maybe intimidating and maybe scary that you would you would have it in terms of warning sign, but you're also like pretty pretty positive about AI. I mean, obviously you do it for a living. Like, there's there's a part of you that like you're like this is a helpful and, and worthwhile technology. Yeah, in the quip session earlier today, I told people that I'm relatively bright-eyed and bushy-tailed about all of this. Um, and I think what I mean by that is the reason I'm an engineer is because I like looking at things and saying, wow, that's amazing, I want to understand it, I want to improve it. And there's some built-in naivety there that I think is dangerous. Like, I need people looking from the outside and saying, like, 
we, we talked a little bit about the quote, just because you can build something doesn't mean you're this actually- This is Jeff Goldblum in, in, Should uh, you build it? in Jurassic Park, yep. right? Um, Your scientists were so busy asking them whether or not they could, right. they didn't ask whether or not they should. Exactly, and so just know that I'm wired in some ways to want to build it and probably be slower to ask, should we build it then? Yeah. Um, but I don't know if that's here or there for that's now. Yeah. Um, should I take a crack at this? Yeah, sure. Um, and I mean, so, do, so one yeah. of, do one of you other guys have like something to say about the desire to stop AI from progressing? <laughs> yeah, I mean, Garrett, you got to start us off here. Dude. Okay. Yeah, you're doing um, great. So yeah, famously early this year, a bunch of famous people, including like Elon Musk, um, which to some of you that's famous and some people like could care less. Um, a lot of really early researchers in this field all called for a six month, if I remember correctly, maybe the question said that, developmental pause while we catch up, whatever that means. Um, now I wish I was a little more familiar with exactly what they were asking, um, but a lot of experts weighed in on both sides of this. And personally, I find the, um, the outcome of we shouldn't do this is more compelling, and so I'll try to justify that briefly, but I would not say there's a clear right answer in my mind here. Um, there, this OpenAI is a company that's really leading the charge in a lot of ways with these technologies, and their, um, their CEO responded to this question, and what I recall with how he responded is when you're developing extremely powerful technology, um, there's maybe two sides. The first side is that, um, is that if the good guys aren't building it, you know the bad guys already are, mm. and there's a risk there. Um, I don't want to be, it's too easy sometimes, like, I'll just throw out something that's a little controversial, but we can tell why it's controversial. The similar argument would be if we outlaw guns and only the bad guys will have guns. Right. There's truth there, and there's also nuance that can't be ignored. Um, I'd say that's applicable here. The other part is we don't know how quickly AI is advancing at this time, and so if you had to divide up, like, let's be naive until we know exactly how to build it, and then it's gonna take off really fast, versus let's build it small and in a way that is approachable right now. Um, his argument's basically the more we maximize the timeline that we're working on this, the better chance we have to understand what we're building and control it, rather than if we turn lights off for a while, the future we come into might actually be harder to control. And I think that's a fair um, argument. The things that maybe we catch up on in like six months are like government regulation. Um, mm -hmm. Personally, I don't think the government is great at regulating these sorts of things, and so I don't think giving them an extra six months to write laws is guaranteeing positive outcomes. Um, but it would allow other sorts of people to be running away with it, and so that's my attempt at an answer, but I wouldn't claim that I, it's definitive in any way. There's brilliant people who feel entirely the opposite of me. Yeah, good. You guys, the rest of you have any thoughts on that? Okay, good job. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> okay, let's, let's maybe more generically, like, um, let's talk about addiction to technology. Okay, so uh, to some degree, some of you have experienced this. We've, we've all probably experienced this in, in some form or another, even in our own lives. Um, but in our children or, um, and some of you have maybe programmed some of this. So, <laughs> I don't know if you've programmed addiction, but... Um, so the question is, will it have the same effect, will addiction to technology have the same effect on children as substance addiction? And this questioner says specifically in lack of maturing in the expected manner. Sorry, what was the last part? In, in, specifically in terms of lack of maturing. Lack of maturing. Yeah, or, or reaching maturity, yeah. Um, well, I, you know, 
This is a topic that interests me, and so I've read a number of books. I have some books that you guys would be welcome to peruse. Um, one that is not necessarily educationally focused, but it's called Dopamine Nation. It's really good um, about just sort of our um, overall uh, willingness to um, ease pain by doing a number of addictive things. Um, one that I have with me today is called Glow Kids. Um, and it is all about the addictive nature of technology, particularly um, on little brains. I think it was something you said, like when you don't have the um, ability yet, when you haven't learned the things yeah. yet um, to, to actually know how to navigate it, then it becomes super dangerous. And um, I mean, they've done, there's, there's actually a lot of studies now on the effect of technology, um, phone, video games, all of those things on children's brains. And it is exactly like heroin or cocaine or any other heavy drug um, taken in major doses. I mean, that, that doesn't mean if you give your kid a cell phone, they're gonna become addicted to it, but right. it can have the same effect on their brains. Um, similarly, it has an effect on their attention, um, and we see um, pretty significant decreases in students' children's ability to focus and pay attention um, when they have a device that is um, constantly pulling on their attention. So, yes, it is highly addictive. Um, technology is highly addictive, and not just for children. As adults, we know that as well. I mean, um, there are some of us who, not me, can't you know pull ourselves away from our our phones or our technology and uh, you know you see adults all the time driving in their cars with their cell phone out and texting and driving and so um, it is highly addictive so and detrimental to to their development um, in in those ways. Yeah, I've, I've read one time that the average time that it takes you to read a text message is something like four point six seconds, and it's like if you you figure out how far you've driven and the amount of time it takes you to read that text message. It's like half a football field, you know, at 30 miles per hour. So, like, it's, it's pretty crazy that you're like, yeah, I'm just going to look down here for, you know, 50 yards, you know. It's crazy. Um, interesting. You had something, Phil? Just to maybe, although I wouldn't call it a silver lining, it's difficult, I think, at this point for us to fully understand how, um, how kids raised with this set of technology are learning how to process larger sets of information, how they're really taking this multiple uh, feeds of information and kind of transforming it in ways that can, can really allow them to think more critically. I think a lot is known about sort of the impulse reaction and sort of that, that dopamine hit, which is very, very real. Um, but I, I think there is still a lot of learning to be had over the long term of just how this generation, this generation of young kids is going to adjust in a world that is very, very connected. Mm -hmm. um, and so I personally am not quite ready to, to, to put it all in the negative camp. I think there will be positives. Um, even pointing to myself, my kids are, are much more, have the opportunity to much, be much more globally aware than, than I am. The question is, will they be? Um, so some of the, in those areas, the jury's still out. But yeah cautiously optimistic about some of the good side of it too. Okay. Yeah. But, they, but you're talking about something different than 
the straight up impulse control. We were talking about, t tell them about the battery life, but what battery screen uh, pickups thing you were talking about. Oh, oh sure, I mean. Oh. <laughs> so there's an app where basically it's a widget on Apple and Android has a similar one, but you can monitor your time usage and it's based off of your battery life. But you can also dig into the number of times you pick up your phone on a given day. And in some ways that tells you how much more you've been interrupted um, or how much like a train of thought gets interrupted because whatever thought is going, all of a sudden you're like, oh, funny cat video from like your mom. <laughs> Because mom send those. Yeah. Um, or whatever it is. So your train of thought. But basically, you can assume that every time you pick up your phone, a train of thought was either, was probably lost, or you're like, I forgot to do something, and then you picked it up. But basically, that was like a change in direction of your thought with yeah. every pickup. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's safe to say, I mean, it's safe to assume, and Phil, I guess that you would, I'm guessing that you would agree with this as well, that like, um, if we have poor impulse control with these devices, the assumption is that children are far less resilient or resistant to that. Yeah. Yeah. I think the other people are, I think if you're not aware of your screen usage in general, then you're also just aware of how long you've been on your device. And I don't think that's also kids. Like kids completely get, the, get lost in an app. Um, but I will say that also happens to like my parents and their siblings. And so when there's, whenever you don't have limits on something, if there's something not governing how much time you're spending on it, you have the opportunity to just fly past any reasonable boundary that you thought you set. Do you all have, um, well, you don't use your phone at all, Jenna, so maybe this question isn't for you. <laughs> you're like, I don't even know where my phone is right now. But maybe for the other three, do you have um, technology that limits you from using technology? You do? So um, as a parent, I spend a lot, a lot of time checking screen time. And I think um, I anecdotally look at mine, but um, I use technology enough that I, I time on my phone is relatively low. But I think where awareness is super critical. Mm -hmm. I haven't had to limit myself. Okay. Um, I, yet, you're making me question that. I'm like, should I be limiting myself? Um, but well, I'm, I, 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 I do. Yeah. Okay, I'm I'm a sucker for chess on the internet. Yeah. Okay, and I can waste time playing chess on my phone. And so I have an app on my phone that blocks me from playing chess, yeah. except for like 45 minutes every day. You know? So this is this is a really good point because this is comes to you like chess a lot. So managing that is I don't like it. Though, that's the okay. problem. So yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think it is. Uh, maybe to what Krista was saying a second ago about, I think we all have different um, weaknesses in yeah. this area, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So finding the tools to manage, whether it's the pickups or the length of time, um, it's, yeah, that's, that's the challenge, I think, yeah. finding the right tool to limit. Yeah. Um, screen time, length of time isn't my particular problem, but yeah. Okay. You have anything, Garrett? No. No. <laughs> maybe should. Garrett's like, I have apps that maximize my time on my laptop. I would just say I'm, I'm not familiar with the technology that limits your technology use, but if you're not as a parent and your child has technology, you should become familiar with yes. it. Because as Krista said, I think that is one of the things that, um, that is particular to that demographic is that 
they, they don't know how to limit, self-limit their own access mm. to it. And I mean, we have, I have probably more than a handful of stories of, of children who, you know, they're tired in the morning. You're like, why are you tired? And they're like, well, because I, I snuck my, you know, I stuck my iPad or my cell phone or whatever. I mean, we have parents who are literally like having to lock up their children's devices because they cannot self-limit. Um, and yeah. so if there is such a thing out there, yeah, and it. it's for both Apple and Google devices, like a lot of that is baked into the system now. It's like one of the things where, you know, this is what, what I was saying earlier when I said like, I don't have to convince people anymore that this is a problem. You see that even in the software, right? The software itself that's built into our phones has, has ways to limit our intake of it, built into it, and certainly for our kids if you can keep them from hacking it. Um, okay. Uh, let's talk about AI again. <laughs> Do AI-generated pictures, audio, and video have digital signatures so that we can tell that they're fabricated? Um, so I believe the answer is they can. And so um, maybe just to explain a little bit how this works. Um, for an image, let's say, you can put a thumbprint on an image where visually, if you looked at an image, you wouldn't tell that it's been... Um, edited, but um, a computer, an algorithm can look at it and see that operations have been done to the pixels and say like this was edited in this way. So that excluding AI, that's the technology that exists. And you could do the same thing to audio. There's, I think there's things in like DRM for music that also do a similar thing, although I don't know the details. And it's also possible in video. Um, and so people are interested in building generative AI models that have this built in, where when you generate an image, you can actually look at it and tell that it was generated by this model. Um, the same, it's actually possible in text, which is really interesting. So these models generate text word by word um, based on probabilities. So they say, what's the most probable word that comes next and what's the most probable word that comes next? If you change those probabilities in imperceivable ways to humans, the algorithms actually can tell and say like, that's AI generated text because I can see the text that was generated would only, like that occurrence of probabilities would only be generated by a computer. Wow. So that's really cool. Um, the fact really is, cool. you, the hard thing here is you can't guarantee that that's being done. And so if you are like, for some reason, you have an AI algorithm that is using that technology, yes, you could also detect it. But there's no way to know that everything on the internet is being done that way. Yeah. And so I would say you absolutely can't depend on this, but it is theoretically possible. Can I ask you another question for a friend? <laughs> sure. What's an algorithm? What's an algorithm? <laughs> Um, sorry, I wish I knew how to explain this one. No, um, <laughs> it's some amount of a ordered set of steps to accomplish some purpose. And so when I say algorithms in the AI space, I'm talking about these neural networks, these mo large language models, maybe you've heard these terms, maybe you, it all is meaningless to you. Um, but it's basically these set of steps we use to generate text or images or videos or these sorts of things. And it's, you should have come to our um, talk earlier today. Yeah. At its most fundamental, the steps are very understandable, but they're put together with some amount of cleverness and complexity that you can get amazing outputs, but an algorithm is just a set of steps you follow, I guess, to accomplish something. So, sorry for the technicalese. No, it's good. Could I say one other quick thing about this? No. Oh, it's already gone. Um, <laughs> is that I think there is, um, I would say I am extremely critical of people who would sell you the ability to, to, to detect generative AI um, content. And so um, I'm not the leading expert in this space, but if I were talking to a school and they said, 
we're afraid about this, we're gonna buy some expensive software that's gonna tell us whether our children's essays are generated by AI, I would say I'm almost 100% convinced that you are getting sold a, a pile of goods, is that, what's the phrase there? Um, the sold algorithms- Down by the river or something? Yeah. The, um, Oceanfront property in Arizona? Yeah. Sure. Yeah, there um, it is. If the algorithms are good enough to write essays that look believable, you can just ask them again, now write it in a way that it doesn't look like an AI generated this and it will do that too. And so hmm. maybe this world changes, but in general, I would be extremely cautious. I've heard sad stories of kids coming home being like, I failed my test or my essay because my teacher said their software said it was 20% likely that an algorithm generated it. It's like, that's not the world we want to live in. Exist knowing that these things exist. Don't trying to catch them in that way, I think is ripe for failure. Just random opinion. Good, okay. Um, okay, I have strong opinions on this next question, but Jenna, I think you have stronger opinions. What is your opinion of children being on YouTube? What's YouTube? <laughs> Just kidding. I know it's something that you watch online. Just kidding. Um, like, Put, putting their own videos on it? Who asked this question? Scott. No, just watching. Watching YouTube. Watching, yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, I would say my answer would probably be similar to, like, turning a television remote over to a, a child to watch any channel from HBO to Cinemax to any of the other, you know, um, access points that they would have. I mean, certainly there are, I know, like fun cat videos and other, th other things that are on YouTube, but I think the um, unlimited access to things that, unless you're sitting right beside them and controlling what it is that they're searching and looking for, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there are probably algorithms for what they're watching that then repopulate. And so yeah. if you, you know, if they look up or searching something that leads them to porn or to something else that you wouldn't want them watching, um, the chance that that's going to continue to pop up, even though they are maybe not looking for it, is is pretty high, I think. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's it's frankly it's far worse than the television, handing them a remote, because there's probably two reasons for that. One is it's a social network, and uh, we should. Remember that YouTube is not just a video platform, it's also a social network, which has certain dangers and uh, challenges. And two, um, yeah, it's, it's feeding you content um, in a way that, that is certainly more, uh, will hook you in, in, I think, more compelling ways than flipping through the channels. Yeah. You guys have thoughts as parents of kids? I think Jenna hit on something really important there. It's um, and I think it's more in a parenting perspective, maybe two things. Um, being alone with technology for any of us yep. is, is a dangerous thing. And um, that requires a certain level of engagement as parenting that can be exhausting, but it's so necessary, right? And it, and it doesn't really stop. I think it becomes um, different as kids get older. I personally have a, a my youngest is now 13. Uh, she does have YouTube. Um, we sit with her most times, We're very conscious when she is by herself. Um, my son is 18 now, and so he has access. And so the slow progression, and we talk a lot about this at our house, the slow progression of 
um, training and equipping to recognize what's okay and what's yeah. not, yep. as well as um, as a parent, ensuring that I, I've tried to equip them in every way possible to recognize that, yeah, there's, there's an algorithm that's gonna feed you the next thing. Um, even if that's the most innocuous thing, it's just gonna continue to try to pull you back and making them aware of it too as a parent. That's critical, that's a critical skill. Yeah, yeah it's part of the mandate as parents. I mean, like, part of living in this world that we're in, like training our children up in the way that they should go includes awareness in the space. And I think a lot of times parents can get to the point where they just go like, well, I don't even understand all this stuff. And then, I mean, that's maybe less true now than it was as this was kind of all beginning, but um, certainly it's part of our mandate as parents to be engaged with, with our kids in this world, yeah. Yeah, I think having the conversation with them at an appropriate age, too, of, of the dangers of it, because, um, you know, you're, you're not going to be able to prevent any, every occurrence of their having access to that. They're going to go to a friend's house, and their friend is going to have it on there. You know, this applies to anything. And so having those conversations and leaving the door open for them to come and share with you that um, maybe they saw something that made them uncomfortable and um, or they need help with um, is is a big part of it as well. And, and just part of, of, of loving them well, of training them up in the way they should go. I think the other thing that we should always be nervous of, and we talked about this in our class, is how thinking through how these websites, how YouTube makes money, and it makes money through ads, through advertisements, and then through you just being on there a really long time. And so it's designed to just keep playing and keep playing and play the next thing and next thing, and it just kind of keeps going. And I think that's the dangerous part, especially with kids, because it can accidentally just kind of take a hard right into things that aren't appropriate really quickly after like 30 seconds, mm -hmm. just even in the advertisement itself. Yeah, good. Okay, kind of keeping on this track, um, you guys all have children, we all have children up here. What are your uh, kids' ages and what are their, kind of what are the rules that you have around technology, use of technology, screen time, stuff like that? So I'll just go because I already shared that our youngest is 13 and then we have an 18-year-old son and we have a college age 20-year-old now. Um, and candidly, just being in the technology field, uh, it was what I felt like for me, uh, a no choice choice to dig into screen settings, be super aware of that stuff. Um, that is how we can limit uh, the technology and what's happening on devices. And um, one thing that became very clear in that, I think to many parents who are very, very intentionally managing that, is that it's a very hard thing to do, is to completely limit or lock things down. In fact, I'd go so far to say it is impossible to shield uh, kids. And I consider myself pretty technologically savvy, um, having designed some of these apps. <laughs> but. Um, at, at getting things locked down, and uh, you just can't do it. So my perspective has grown to be uh, one of use the tools, um, have good conversations, and um, be very aware of what's happening in, in closed and quiet spaces, uh, and learn and 
not necessarily assume the best of my kids, although love them a lot, um, because they fall victim to temptation too. That's my, been my journey. So our kids are 10, 8, and 6. Um, we have pretty, uh, I guess, strict limits um, in terms of what they can do on de devices, which is about 30 minutes on the weekend. Um, the six-year-old who's home on two other days gets a little more leeway, especially with Pete the cat. Um, and if you give a mouse a cookie, which is fantastic, because um, they're slower shows, um, he gets a little more leeway on his days when he's home from school. But other than that, that's the limits we have. And they will tell you they have their own phones. I will tell you those are our old phones that we use for airplane trips. And they're not theirs. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a three-year-old, basically almost three-year-old and a one-year-old daughter. And so we're just maybe moving into the phase of at least managing their Unlimited technology. Unlimited screen time. But I want them to use it as much as possible. No. Um, so... They're AI generated. <laughs> the... I'd say that I feel like this is somewhat ripe for like kind of the technology shaming aspect, but um, the, what has worked for my wife and I so far, but I'm not claiming that we've really solved this, yeah. is like for a one-year-old, for the most part, she doesn't get any technology or screen time. Um, then my, our three-year-old, there's very specific time windows that she gets hit, so after naps, she gets something like a single short show um, most days, we'll say. Um, like she gets to, she hasn't watched very many movies, but she gets to watch a movie in very special occasions. Like when her aunt comes over, they'll watch a movie. They're probably watching a movie tonight while we're here. Um, and like we, in general, don't want our kids to like, they don't have a phone or an iPad or anything like that. The one caveat is that when we fly on a plane, my daughter gets to watch a movie on the iPad, which she thinks is like the craziest thing ever. Yeah. And um, I wouldn't say that's a super highly informed, like we decided at this age suddenly that's okay. but. Um, Honestly, that is Good. the yeah. technology that they get access to. So. Okay. So while he's handing, hello, while he's handing that over, sorry, for some reason didn't feel like it was working for a second. It wasn't booming enough. Um, <laughs> let me make this quick plug. If you haven't caught this, so the more you limit screen time, the more effective it is when you like dole it out to kids. It's a, like it's amazing, right? So suddenly, if a kid who doesn't get to watch movies very much, they will love you when you let them watch a movie. So consider that. And I would say conversely to that, you, you'll know they've had a little too much technology if you take it away and they become undone. Like, yeah. Yeah. undone. Um, you've seen it in the grocery store. Um, my children are grown. I have a 24-year-old son and a 26-year-old daughter. Um, and I was, um, maybe because I'm sort of technology-averse, um, and they were just on the cusp of... Um, technology, I, I'm pretty sure I didn't manage it very well. Um, in fact, I know I'm not because they, you know, they got exposed to some things that if I had had some, you know, privy to, maybe I would have um, figured out how to um, help lessen or diminish that exposure to it. Um, but it'll be interesting to, I think grandkids are on the next, they're, okay. No one is pregnant, <laughs> but that is the next. This is how rumors start. <laughs> I know, right? That is probably the next um, phase of, okay. of my technology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. 
we have five kids, um, 15, 13, 11, and then seven and five. Um, we have kind of gone in waves, I think, over the course of time. You know, it's interesting when your kids are little, like, technology can be a, like, a screen can be a huge blessing at certain times of the day. Um, and we've, we, I mean, I think all parents know that. You start to learn, like, man, if I could just throw on a show for half an hour here and there, like, it is a blessing. Um, and we've tried hard to avoid that, but I don't think we've done that super successfully. Um, but our kids don't, don't get a lot of screen time. I mean, they're, during the week, our kids are only using screens if they have stuff for school to do that they need to research or work on. Um, our older three kids do have their own devices. Um, our 15-year-old kind of need, we need to be able to communicate with her. Um, th so they all have iPhones and they are all basically dumb phones. So it's like they don't, there's no web browser. I mean they can text, call, and listen to music and that's kind of it. My goal is to like give them access to these communication devices so that we can communicate with them and then make them the least appealing things that they own. So our kids like don't care a lot about, I mean, they're starting to care more because it's the gateway to friends for them and community uh, in that sense. But, and then our, our little boys, I think, you know, every once in a while they watch a show, a movie on the weekend, but not a lot, yeah. Um, okay, thinking about like our mandate as followers of Christ, like we are, we're called into this world. You know, one of the things I'm gonna, I'm gonna argue tomorrow actually in the sermon is like we, we can't, we can't withdraw. Like, we can't not be involved in the digital space. You can't make it go away, and we're called to be on mission to a world that's kind of in the digital space. So with that in mind, like, how can, do you guys have opinions on how believers can best utilize technology, um, particularly maybe social media, to, to be engaged in the mission of the gospel? Like, are there tips or ideas that you guys have in that regard? Are you guys on social media? I am on it, but I don't really use it yeah. at all. Yeah. So, I was gonna say, I think. Um, I'm not either. Your, yeah. I think the words and the, a picture is worth a thousand words, but also on social media, your words are amplified so, so, so much more. And I think Kind of anything that is posted, you can assume that people will take that. They will interpret it 100. They could interpret it even 100 different ways. Um, whether if it's like, hey, this is a great day. I'm so happy. People are like, you know. And so I think letting your words be seasoned with salt, that idea of choosing words really wisely um, and not only sharing, like, the really, like, happy, happy, happy things, um, but acknowledging that things are hard and difficult, um, but also recognizing that I think very few souls are going to be won and lost in social media debates, and if anything else, just be winsome so that we give off the aroma of Christ, mm. trusting that only through like real-life discipleship, the actual Word and the Holy Spirit are people going to come to know the Lord. Does that help? Makes sense. That's kind of the lens I use is like try to be winsome, try to be authentic, and just be, try to be wise. Yeah. 
Yeah, one thing I've been convicted of is that, um, and you know, I'm not like, I'm not angry on the internet to begin with, but it's, it's very easy to forget that there are people on the other side of those wires. Um, that there are people that are flesh and bone that will hear the words you say. And, you know, when the, when the scripture says that we're going to be accountable for every word, that includes the things you type into anonymous internet sites. Like, we are accountable for the ways that we live and speak. And so keeping in mind that, like, there's flesh and bone on the other side is, is you know, maybe that's less true now with all the bots, but, um, <clears throat> but, but for, for many years up until recently, um, that's, that's something to remember is that there are real people on the other side of things, and so the, the way that we speak and type matters. Yeah. One, one thing I just read this last week um, regarding AI was how we talk even to bots starts to develop our own habits of how we speak and type to humans. And so in some ways, like if you're going to be rude to a bot or a telemarketer, you are increasing the odds that you're going to be rude to someone you dearly love or maybe are trying to win for the Lord. Listen, and so I'm cultivating just, habits. I'm just nice to the bots because someday they're going to take over. And that. So... <laughs> Like they're at least, he was at least kind to me. We're gonna give him a good pod up at the yes. top. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Other thoughts? How you know? How can we be winsome and engaged in the digital world? No. Okay. If you have nothing nice to say, don't say it. Thank you. That's a good one. Okay. <laughs> Garrett, we've had this conversation. I'm interested to hear your thoughts here. AI sounds like a job killer. Is it? Um, this is a great question, and I don't feel like I'm necessarily the most equipped person to answer it. You're the most but I'll, here. I'll do my yeah. best. Um, there's a lot of interesting ideas in this area. Um, right now, I'd say AI or generative AI, which is this um, cultural moment we're in as far as machine learning goes, is definitely a tool still at this point. And so it's a tool that can make people whose jobs have certain characteristics, like if you're generating information, if you're generating, definitely generating text or generating images, um, that this tool will make you more efficient in your job if you use it correctly, I would say. And so there are, and those efficiencies are continuing to pile up. And so it's going to affect job markets in the future. I, I can't see how it wouldn't, because it is um, making a person able to do more and so at some point, you can have one person doing the job of five, let's mm. say. Um, I'm not entirely the right person to talk about how, but my understanding is that historically, when technology has made people more efficient, um, some people lose their jobs, but at the macro scale, more jobs have been created. So mm. once machines started doing all the creation of our fabrics, there's a lot of people who were no longer weaving because the power looms replaced them, but there's now many more jobs because of that. And so I'm at risk as an engineer to just say like, oh, those people find new jobs. Like there's real people who will probably lose jobs because yeah. of this. I think making predictions on what the time scale for this is is really difficult. 
Um, so like one little anecdote is as a software engineer, there are now these algorithms, sorry, I keep using that term, that help me write software a lot faster. And so there's this mythical person out there called the 10X software engineer who just does like 10 times more than everyone else on his team. And a lot of people are saying like, now that I have these tools, I feel like the 10X software engineer. Mm. Like I'm, some people are claiming they're literally five to 10 times more productive than they were two years ago with these technologies. And so at some point you have to say there's companies that needed three developers before and now they just need one. Hmm. Um, another thing that's related to this, or two things I'll say are related to this that I think I don't have the answer, I know I don't have the answers to, but Christians need to figure out how to engage, is this is bringing up, um, talking a lot about universal basic income and how if these algorithms, sorry, I'm just gonna keep using the term, um, get powerful enough, there's gonna be some companies that can write let's say all the software the world's need, build, build all the robots the, world's need, the world needs, and we're gonna be at this point where a lot of power is concentrated into some hands, and so a solution people propose for that is a basic income where um, you tax those companies heavily, and then the money is distributed so that people don't get left behind. Um, that's like a political thing that I'm not equipped to touch, right? But people are talking about this, and whether that's going to happen someday or not, we need Christians in the public sphere who are entering those dialogues, right? And talking about, is that the ultimate way to care for the poor and the powerless? Or is that um, actually a really messy way of creating mm -hmm. dependency and not um, generating a culture that actually is where people would flourish in? Um, so that's one thing, sorry, I'm, this is a little long. You You're said when great. I go long to Keep stop. Um, the one other thing I'll say that I think is really interesting and just worth calling out is that Historically, I don't know if I was directly told this or I just always had this understanding that as technology progresses, how you outrun that is by upskilling. And so like maybe a job that you could have 50 years ago, um, maybe those are disappearing because it's being automated away or something. So you should go get a, more education. You should go be a doctor or a lawyer or an yeah. engineer. Sorry, not to step on people's toes if you were or weren't in those categories. The interesting thing with generative AI is because it's trained on the information of the web is that it's really good at information regurgitation, and so it is good at things like reading brain scans, it's good at things like writing software, it's good at things like passing the MCATs, and so I don't think it's ultimately gonna replace these people, but it looks like it's, it threatens my job as a software engineer, and it threatens doctors and lawyers in, in a much more direct sense than it affects, I'm sorry, I'm just pulling out generalities, but plumbers and electricians and baristas, right. Right. Um, and that's an interesting thing to take note of. Yeah. Um, and then the other side of that, super briefly, sorry, is... Uh, <laughs> um, We're fascinated, so keep it up, yeah. Um, I'd say the, the other side of it that we just need to think about is like, I would think that it could someday, these algorithms will generate a better learning plan than a lot of kindergarten teachers could generate for their children, but it won't replace classroom management. Yep, she says no, so that's, that's just me making a prediction. Um, someday, like, it'll be able to read a brain scan or a cardiogram or something like that better than the best trained doctors will. It will not replace their bedside manner. Mm. Um, so there's all these categories where I think when it comes to information creation, the machines are coming for you. Um, when it actually comes to like human interaction or other things, there's still a really long ways to go, and so we just need to figure out how to um, interact with that. So Good. Thank you. Wow. Yeah, that's fascinating to think like th this, I mean, this mu must be the first kind of technological um, advancement that, that has kind of come for the most skilled or what we perceive at least to be the most skilled um, jobs. It's crazy.
Okay, where do we want to go next? Um, should I accept cookies? What info does it give or receive? So I've some, spent some time thinking about this and trying to convince people <laughs> to do it. Um, you want people to accept cookies. You know, Phil I, wants you to accept here, the cookies. Here's, here's the perspective I think I'd share is um, you are always trading your data for something, right? And you need to make it a good trade, right? So the trade in, in, in cookies, and if you're not familiar with them, the most, most common ones really revolve around, um, let me rewind, cookies are basically a set of information that's stored on your computer so you can be recognized or your um, actions within a piece of software can be recognized. It's most common in web browsers um, because you know, in a good way they don't want to suck all your information back up into a um, centralized location. They leave some of that information locally because uh, sometimes it can be private. Um, but there's just a set of information. And what that allows, if you say okay to these cookies, what that allows them to do is do things like show, hey, this is, this is what you were doing for. In other words, these were the things you were shopping for. Okay, and again, in some cases, this isn't necessarily using cookies. Amazon is a good example of this, right? They're just storing it locally. But in the case of a lot of cookies, what it's doing is it's trying to feed you back information that's more relevant to you, right? So if you rewind back, you know, 10 years ago, when you logged into a website, you saw, you know, um, advertisements for underwear and measuring tapes and who knows what. And now you'll notice that those are much more tailored to what you're doing. And you can look at that one of two ways. Oh my gosh, they know a lot about me. Okay, that's fair. Um, the other thing is, I don't think you wanted to see advertisements about underwear. I, and frankly, they figured out that you're not gonna click on advertisements for underwear, unless you've been shopping for underwear, to be fair. Um, so that's the trade-off, right? I don't have to see things that aren't really relevant to me. And so, and there's a couple other types of cookies. There's purely functional ones, right, that make it so that you can actually interact with the website in a way that, you know, just makes it go, right? There's no real private information there. And then there's um, information there that's also stored and sent to developers about whether or not it's working right. Um, and so, to be fair, that last category is the one I, I mostly play in. I don't really do advertising data collection. But um, that's, again, it's a, it's a trade. And so, even if you go to say, um, should I enter my email in this form for 10% off? I don't know, that's, that's really up to you. I mean, is it worth it to you for that 10% off? But realize it's an exchange of, of value. And what's really great about this is we have gotten much better as a, a, an overall society based on a growing body of laws that requires you to be asked, okay? So the thing I would suggest is, I don't know, no, no one reads it all, I understand that, except for dorks like me, but we, that information, understanding at least at a basic level, why it is it's asking you for your information, take that moment and, and take a look, especially if it's a new, a new uh, website or application. Now, the ones you see on the internet, those three cookies, they're the same everywhere you go. You can pretty much feel confident that once you've read it, read it through once or looked at it once, it's, it's gonna be the same thing. But just be aware that you're trading and make sure it's worth it. Thanks.
uh, <clears throat> in the schools, Jenna, or you know, maybe in your own kids, have you, have you noticed a decline in reading, writing, spelling because children have laptops and phones with spell check, talk to text, that kind of thing, instead of truly having to spell or write on paper? You know, and maybe this is tricky to say at Liberty because it's a pretty low-tech school, but have you seen that decline in the classroom? Um, I wouldn't say we have. I mean, we um, at a charter school, core knowledge school, um, K-12, um, and we're very low-tech, so we don't um, invite a lot of technology. Um, and we actually make students handwrite quite a bit. <laughs> so there's no chance that AI is doing their papers for them. Um, sometimes there is in high school. Um, but I wouldn't say I've noticed a general decline in um, writing and spelling, sometimes reading, um, but reading primarily because it is um, something that requires focus. Long-term attention. Long-term mm -hmm. yep. um, attention and, and sometimes um, both reading fluency and reading comprehension because it's, it's too long for them to comprehend. Um, and so um, I, I wouldn't say a massive impact on our student population. And I would just put in a plug for um, parents who have students at schools that have more technology in the classrooms. Um, I would ask you to ask what they're using that technology for, what the protections are on that technology, and why. What is the technology doing that, that's better than what something else could be doing? Because I think, um, again, there's a lot of money to be made in educational technology, and you're sort of sold a story that it's better than what would normally be happening in the, in the school. And I would, I would just encourage you um, as a parent to do your due diligence and ask what it is that it's aiding and helping in. Yeah. Good. You guys have other thoughts on that? Stuff you've seen? Okay. When our kids get to the point of having a device, what are helpful apps or security settings, what's, what's essential? And if you guys have specific recommendations, go for it. So I'll touch on at least what we did with our kids. So, um, and, and as I think Krista mentioned before, there are reasonably good screen controls on both Android-based and, and Apple-based devices. Um, so just kind of the baseline for us has been how long are they using it for, right? Um, both platforms let you control specific areas, games versus, um, other types of media, so um, it's not super granular in a lot of cases, so you have to spend a little bit of time, but there's a limit on the number of uh, hours to be spent, so I think that's worth it. Um, coming to an understanding with your, with your spouse or whoever you were kind of sharing that responsibility for parenting with uh, is important, so you both are on the same page, um, because there will be conversations with your kids about why can't I have more and making sure you have the, a good answer for that is, is uh, an important thing. Um, content restrictions work relatively well. Um, it's, um, I think, okay to uh, assume that some of the basic 
things like um, content they're downloading um, may not be limited in terms of, of what the rating is, that is individual apps, but for sort of media that's coming through either the Apple store or through the Android store, that's pretty, pretty well um, uh, controlled if you set it up that way. So that's content. Um, one of the biggest windows that you should look at closing and you can close is on, um, on internet browsing. Uh, so be very mindful that that is a big wild west of good and bad things out there. I'll, I'll try to be positive. Mostly we, bad though. Mostly, mostly yeah. bad, okay. Um, <laughs> so just, you can do that. Just to be clear, like that, but, I'm not making that up. Yeah. One third of internet content is pornographic. Yeah, totally. So that's just a stat. So that's crazy to yeah. think about. So spend the time setting up the tools, I think they are, but underlying all this, to yeah. be clear, is, again, don't assume it's gonna catch it all. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's really a core assumption. And also be aware that as your kids are getting older, you will continue to have to make good choices, have good conversations with them about what these settings are. I don't think any of this really works if, uh, first of all, you're assuming that you don't have to worry about it ever again, or that your kids are five forever, so. Yeah, or the tech will just manage it for you for the rest yeah. of their lives. Yeah, the, and the tech won't, won't necessarily, yeah. um, uh, tech won't evolve to catch um, the newest things, although you need to um, look at apps they're downloading and things like that. That would be a good way to try to stay ahead of a few more of those things. Yeah. So. Anything? I would say that you know one good expectation to set for your kids would be this is not a private place. So any any time young children are involved in the digital world, the assumption that they have should be I see everything you see. Um, and to be honestly, I think that should be true for your spouse as well. If you're married, passwords should be shared, everything should be open. Um, but certainly with kids, it's, it's a great way for you to, to make sure that they understand. Like, there's, there's nothing secret here. There's, there's no way to hide here. I'm going to be aware of kind of what's happening. And then, then as a parent, your goal over time is to help them to step into their own kind of autonomy, which is true with kind of the rest of parenting as well. You're like, you know... <laughs> You see, you see everything at first, but over time, you like you get kind of your own space and your own you know your own vehicle and your own devices, and that's part of becoming an adult. But the same is true here. Yeah. I would just add, um, I think the the average age children are exposed to porn on devices is eight years old, mm -hmm. um, and so I would encourage you to delay access to those devices as long as you can. Um, some say like. <laughs> No phones before eight. I mean, we have seven and eight-year-olds at our school sometimes that have phones. I would say delay until they absolutely need it. Yep. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't think much before the age of 13. <laughs> if they're in athletics or things like that and need to be in contact with you, there are lots of other tech, technology um, that they can have access to that. But delay it as long as you can and then have really... Um, clear conversations around this is my device, I see everything that's on it, these are the rules for it, I can take it back whenever I want it. Um, you know, all of those sort of safeguard conversations. Yeah, and even, you know, family rules that, Absolutely. that set you up. Okay. I do have a lovely phone contract that one of our families many, many years ago wrote for, for their 
son, and it's lovely. I'd be happy to share that with anyone who's looking at signing a contract. I mean, it's a contract, but it's um, a statement of under mutual understanding with the person that you're handing basically a high-powered computer with access to unlimited things. So. Yeah. And if you find yourself wondering if limits are enough, do consider the kid sitting next to yours may not have limits on their phone, right? And so that pursuit of some of these uh, things, inappropriate content, things, that, can, that just takes other paths. So those conversations are absolutely critical. Um, cover your kids in prayer. Mm -hmm. Be aware of where they are and, and the relationships they have with other kids too. That's the other part of managing access to some of this stuff. Yeah, I mean, you know, along with that stat about, you know, the young age of exposure to pornography, 80% of that happens at home. Like, that's the other half of that stat, is that most of the time that happens in your own home. Um, and if, if, you know, you've, if you've created a world in which, like, the internet is secret for you, you know, or it's this mysterious place, like, rather than a place where it's like, look, there's digital technology that kind of surrounds us and we have to be engaged with one another as we engage in this world, then inevitably when, you know, most kids are going to be exposed to pornography at some point. And when that happens, the question that you need to ask yourself is, when my kids first get exposed to this, are they going to come to me? Um, there's no filter, there's no software that will make that happen. Um, Speaking of, this question did ask about specific software. Do you guys have specific software recommendations? We would mentioned the built-in, the screen time stuff. The app I use is one called Freedom. Um, it's for, it's freedom dot, it's like dot T-O or something. It has a weird website, but um, I, I like that one because it, I can lock myself out if I need to. There's times when I will just, I will lock off my, like my phone will be, you know, you could just turn it off, but I can also just turn it back on. And so for me, is you know, I just want to make sure that I'm kind of shut down. I can it it will lock up my phone for a certain period of time, just altogether too, which I think is fantastic. The other way, I mean, so just so that people are actually so it's under settings on at least on Apple, and then under battery, and you can see like screen time, and so that's literally where it is under settings. Mm -hmm. Or if you Google how to limit my app on an Apple, yeah, on Apple you. now it's just there's a screen time. Yep, thing it's a screen time itself. option. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Okay, um, how would you guys encourage the, um, let's say the older and wiser saints in our midst with their grandchildren? Okay, so um, we have older brothers and sisters in this room that are like trying to engage with grandkids and that feels like we're just worlds apart at this point, partly because of the pace of the change over time. Are there ways that you would encourage that interaction, um, how could they be relevant without just jumping in and engaging with screens alongside their grandkids? Any ideas? Our children, probably like most other kids, are extremely narcissistic and don't know it. And so if you just ask them about what they're interested in, and so if you get the 10-year-old going off on sports, he will just be rattling along and you can play catch with him and there's no screens and, you know, so like kind of digging into what each kid is interested in and being genuinely curious about it. I think that like there's no generation gap that can be shortened very quickly. Um, and so even 
also our favorite, new favorite thing is a lot of the fun games that we enjoy playing have junior versions and are for like five or four year old and they can play Settlers of Catan and Ticket to Ride and there's even one where you can play chess and it's an actual board and if you want any of those, you can come to our house and borrow them and 90% of the pieces are there. <laughs> and that's all you need for 45 minutes of really fun time. Yeah. Okay. Play a game. Go on a walk. I, you know, I'll, I'll say that, like, from, from my experience in youth ministry, especially when kids get into their teenage years, but I think this is probably true when they're younger, too, kids don't actually want screens, which is, I think, a secret that most people won't tell you. Like, kids might be addicted to them. They might be hooked on them. They might use them all the time. But if you take that thing from them and you turn it off and you do something with them, they will take that 100 times out of 100. When we used to get on the bus before we'd go on retreats and we'd put all the phones in a bag for all the kids and be like, you can get them on the drive home, you know? I would ask kids, like, what was that experience like when you, you know, didn't have your phone for 48 hours? And almost every single one of them says something like, it's refreshing. You know, just, and they feel just like you feel, right? If you didn't have your phone for 48 hours, you might be freaked out and feel the, we were talking about phantom vibrations, like, oh, did it just go off? You know, you might feel those kinds of things, but you would, you would also feel like a huge kind of sense of, I think, peace and, and relief at the end of the day. Yeah. Other encouragements for the... I definitely don't feel like I have a for sure answer here, but just an encouragement. Um, we have friends who's, who have strict screen rules for their children, um, and their grandparents have learned that, or the kids have learned that they can get phones from their grandparents. And so grandparents, I've seen them feel loved because they'll show up and the grandkid will be like, can I play with your phone? And the grandparent feels loved by giving it to them. Mm. And so I would just encourage you to partner with your, your kids, the parents of the children, yeah. in these efforts. Um, there's other ways that you can get positive outcomes from your grandkids that aren't stepping around, like these things that we're talking about tonight are hard for, um, for parents to, yeah, to maintain. That's a good. Um, that's so good. just like an encouragement there. Um, I don't know how she did it, but my mom somehow convinced my older daughter that when she shows up, she gets to read as many books as she wants. So my mom, bless her heart, reads like many, many dozens of books per day <laughs> when she comes to my house. And it's really wild, but it's a blessing that that's what she thinks of instead of like, hey, can I have um, an app on your phone? Yeah. So I'm blessed by that. Yeah, so okay. how, whatever it takes to replicate that, please try. Yeah. Um, you know, I've had parents ask me, like, how do, I, how do I get my kids to read? And my answer is always, they need to see you reading. And it's similar with um, technology. How do I get my kids to put down their phone? Put down your phone. Everyone should just... I mean, I know families who say, like, when you walk in the door, phones go in a basket mm -hmm. or however that works. Um, but I would say the same for, for grandparents because, I mean, I think all of us have a little handheld computer and um, sometimes it just, you just have to put it down. Um, there's, there's a lot to be said from taking a break from phones for a while. Yeah. Um, and if it's, again, if it's a big deal to take a break from a phone for a while, then maybe there's a problem. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah I, will, I will say like those kinds of habits that you can kind of show your kids are, are pretty, are kind of a big deal, right? One of the things I've tried to do, and I'm not great at this all the time though, like if I'm looking at my phone um, for whatever reason, 
and uh, a kid walks into the room, my practice is to, to take it and put it face down somewhere kind of out of sight. So like, because what I want my kids to, to remember is not that dad was always here, as addicted as I can be to a device at times, but that, that I was like here with you, you know, looking at you. And so even those kinds of like, that's, that's, just a, that's just a habit, right? I can just, when somebody walks into the room, I'm gonna take this and I'm gonna look at them rather than look at this, you know? Those kinds of things I think go a long way in, in how we engage well with our kids or with our grandkids. Okay. Uh, you guys doing good? Keep going? Stop? Thumbs up? Thumbs down? Okay. <laughs> um, AI. We're going to keep going on AI, Garrett, for you. Um, <clears throat> going off the other things said about AI and how someone can't really know if I'm using it to write my essay, what a, what's your opinion on using ChatGPT when writing both in school and professionally? When I first started playing with ChatGPT, which is probably maybe about six months prior to it kind of going, I feel like it was like early spring this year when like it really hit the news and I'd been playing with it a little bit prior to that. Um, I remember having a conversation with Carla about how like people aren't gonna have to write essays anymore. And then I was like, maybe that's not a bad thing, you know? I've since changed my mind on that, but yeah, what do you think about using these tools for writing? Um, so I really don't, like I'm not entirely the right person to, to answer this. I almost feel like anyone up here you could, saying could that. answer it. You're the um, only right person here to answer no, this question. Um, but so my thoughts are basically that this is a new tool. Um, something I said in the AI session earlier today is that I think it's important for kids to learn how to do long division before you hand them a calculator. Um, but then at some point you need to understand that it's just better to use the calculator than yeah. to do this by hand. Yeah. Um, that's not a great m metaphor, or maybe not a metaphor, but parallel to essay writing, let's say. But um, in some ways I'd say you should use these tools for writing if the purpose is to generate, like if you need to generate more content or you wanna, you wanna write content and ask it, could you make this sound more professional or could you make this sound more empathetic? It can help you with that. And so using it with intention, I, I don't personally see a huge problem with that. Um, using it when it's cheating is absolutely wrong and so you shouldn't do yeah. that. Um, but there's a real concern of like, there's something about writing that actually makes us organize our thoughts in a way that's mm -hmm. extremely developmental, yeah. not just for children, but right. for adults. Right. Like you wanna organize your thoughts on something, go write an essay about it. Writing is a learning process, yeah. in other words. It's and not just a creation process. Yeah. I, yeah, and so I'd say that that is absolutely threatened by this, right? And so you need to be honest with yourself or we need to be honest with each other about what our purposes are with freeform text. And then I'd say when it's the right tool for the job, this is me as the bright-eyed and bushy-tailed um, technology person on the panel, yeah. is like I think it should be used. But um, okay. people probably have great reasons why they disagree. Jenna, do you disagree? Does Krista, do you disagree? I, just have thoughts? I mean, one thing with any brand new technology or brand new fancy shiny thing is we don't know how the essays that you write now, how those are going to be received or looked at in like 20 years. And when you're up for tenure at a professor, like to be a professor, and all of a sudden your, your thesis from, you know, 15 years ago was run through this program. It's like, oh wait, you use ChatGPT, like that's cheating and you're denied. And so I think like we don't know how it's going to be 
the light that it's going to be seen long term, like when Jesus says, like everything that's in the dark is going to be brought to the light. So similar to like your motives, but you just don't know how it's going to be received in the future. And so I think using as much wisdom and in some way restraint until, yeah, you just don't know what's, what it's, the opinion of it in 30 years is going to be and how that might negatively affect you. Yeah, it was funny when Garrett and I talked about I don't know if you remember, like, part of what kicked off Technology at Equip Day is I introduced a sermon by using a chat GPT-generated intro uh, as an illustration, okay? I don't ever do that otherwise. Um, and Garrett came up to me afterwards, and he goes, hey, we should probably talk about AI. And, and one of the things that was interesting to me was that he goes, you know, we should consider talking about technology and AI specifically in the church. And he's like... I can't remember exactly how you said it, Garrett, but it was something like, you know, six months from now, this could be something that's only used in, in, bus like in business applications, and six months from now, it could be something that's fundamentally changed the world. Um, and so that's, that's a great warning, Krista. Like, we don't know. Like, it's so early in, in this technology that you don't know what the implications of engaging with it are. Yeah. You have thoughts, Jenna? Um... Not entirely. I mean, at the elementary level, we probably won't have a lot of students using chat GPT to fabricate. And you'll probably know pretty quick. What's up? You'll probably know pretty quick. We might know kind of quick. Um, but I, you know, it's, it's similar to, I was like lay grading papers 25 years ago when, you know, the when the computer just came out. No, it was a little bit after that. But people would... You know, they would take entire sections of, I don't know, Wikipedia or whatever, and, and plagiarize it, and, and that feels similar. Like, it is just exchanging one opportunity to not use your full brain and your full capacity yeah. and your full um, thinking to, um, to, to, to write your own thoughts. And so um, I hadn't really ever thought of using it more as, like, a thesaurus to kind of, or a pull out a, you know, a synonymous phrase or something similar to that, but I could see where that could be an interesting use for it. But, um, you know, as an educator, I would probably say I would always prefer to have a student's, even if it's not the best writing, I would rather have it be their thoughts, their process, their um, ability to integrate um, whatever it is that they're trying to pull together versus a computer-generated thought because it is such a, a growing process in their own thinking and their own ability to, to process and integrate information. So maybe after high school or college, I don't know. Yeah, interesting. Okay, what is ChatGPT? <laughs> um, so GPT specifically, this is what you really were asking, stands for a generative pre-trained transformer. Totally. And so now that I answered your question, um, what you should do experientially, I think, is more important here. You should Google ChatGPT and go play with it. There's a free version that's pretty capable, and then you can pay $20 a month for something that's mind-bogglingly, is that the word? Yeah, mind-bogglingly more um, capable. Bottle, bottlingly. Yeah, it's just going to boggle you all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what it is, is it's an algorithm, there you go again, that um, takes in text and generates text. Um, but what it looks like is a text message between you and something on some machine on the other side of 
this. And so you can ask it questions. You can tell it, write me an essay. You can say, give me um, a better recipe for blueberry muffins. Um, just you give it text and it'll um, give you text back and it tends to be surprisingly accurate and it's absolutely not perfect. Um, but what I would, I guess, so I just encourage you to go use it. It's kind of like if 25 years ago, right, 25 is too long, 20 years ago, um, you're like, what is Google? And I'd say, go, go use it. This is going to transform the way you interact with, with information. Hmm. That's, um, but ChatGPT is a specific company called OpenAIs. Um, they tr trained one of these large language models and it's on the web free to use and it's the one that's kind of culturally defining what generative AI is doing at this moment. Is that? cover the details there enough? I think so, yeah. Basically, you're, I mean, uh, interestingly, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Garrett, or maybe Phil, you know this, but um, you have spoken to chatbots before on the internet. If you've ever filled out a customer service, like, hey, I've got a problem, if you've ever typed into a website uh, in any customer support, almost always that starts with some rudimentary form of AI, right? And sometimes it's kind of a bit of just a flow tree, but um, those things are getting more and more, um, I can't think of the word, refined, capable, yeah. Um, yeah. No, I was gonna pitch it over to you because that, that distinction, and, and Aaron just alluded to it, the shift now um, is something that's predefined and essentially is just interpreting um, a set of instructions it was already given to give you back an answer that uh, someone already determined was the right answer in the right order. I mean, with some intelligence and some good wording has, is giving way to what Garrett's describing here, which is something which is um, based on a much larger understanding of data and a much more complex and capable real-time interpretation of, of, of data and of a model. So. There is, I guess that's just to say, you can see the difference, right, when you interact with something that's AI-driven versus kind of just a back and forth. Now, you'll, you'll catch it here more and more, I think, as these technologies move. And I think what you'll find is it's, it's a better experience, right? And so this is where I think, you know, we can get a little excited about some of these capabilities. At the end of the day, some of them are really making our interactions with technology a little bit easier, a little bit less friction, and that can also be a good thing. We can be a little doom and gloom over the things it makes easy, but um, getting an answer I want rather than a canned answer that someone thought I want, but uh, that wasn't it, is a lot better experience. Yeah, yeah. Okay, maybe we'll end with this question. It's 8.30, getting... It's been an hour and a half. You guys are doing great. Um, how much technology integrated into life is godly? And I'm just going to leave it there and let you each kind of give your, your take here and maybe some kind of whatever closing comments you have. So I feel like we cheated on this question because we, we did address it earlier in the day. Um, if, if the question is more how, what is the volume of technology that you're using that kind of tips the balance between, you know, godliness, not godliness, I don't think that's a thing. Um, I think that how we are using the, the ends to which we use it is what God really cares about, our heart behind what we're doing when we use these technologies. Um, I've always 
kind of argued, um, and sometimes successfully to my wife and others, that you know, technology isn't oftentimes making new things, it's just making the old things easier to do, um, which means the same sins, the same attacks of Satan, um, are just that much easier to fall into. So to that extent, um, some things are easier. And so I wouldn't necessarily say that more or less technology, that may be better gauged by what is your tendency towards sins that technology makes a lot easier to do. Yeah, I would probably answer that by um, what, where, where are your affections? Mm -hmm. I mean, the Lord um, asks us for our, our whole heart, our mind, our soul. Um, and if your affections are being led to something other than um, that, then, then it might be too much. Um, and if it is consuming in a place of idolatry and what you're worshiping and looking at, I mean, if it's, you know, in front of you, I, I think similarly about the television. Um, but it really is, from my perspective, a heart, a heart issue. What, where, where, where are your affections and, and how, how are you using the technology? Um, and obviously that has to be a personal sort of personal and I, I would say invite others around you to speak into that as well. So. Um, I think I probably compare a lot of things to meat sacrifice to idols, but this is, I think, also <laughs> similar to when Paul is talking about eating meat sacrifice to idols. Um, the idea of... How many things do you compare to meat sacrifice to idols? Did you just say alcohol? I compare a lot of things? Yes. So okay. people are like, can I do, can I drink alcohol? Yeah, yeah, okay. Can okay. I buy an expensive mm -hmm. car? Can I, like, what are all these things? Okay. It's, there's not like a writer, it's not morally, it's morally yeah. ambiguous. Yeah, yeah, okay. So like meat sacrifice to idols is like, um, and so everyone has, I think like in some ways your own conscience and your own heart are going to be, if you're introspective enough, going to lead you. And it might be different. The way my screen use and technology use is going to be different than my husband's, which is different than my kids, which is different than a friend's. And yet we are all accountable to the Lord for our time and for our attention and for our affection. And so if I can, if kind of within the body, within my family, if I can in good conscience do the technology I'm doing, I think that's kind of what the Lord would have for me. But if at the end of any week I'm like, I didn't have time to pray and read the Bible and meet up with community and I feel kind of spastic. And if I look at my phone, I'm like, and this is why I need to repent. Mm. Um, I'll give an answer here that I think maybe just is, is a lens you could look at this through specifically related to maybe AI since that's what I've been focused on. Um, with I view a lot of this as tools, and so um, in one sense, the dominion mandate that God gives in Genesis to go take dominion of the world, a lot of these tools or um, even AI could be the ultimate form of taking dominion. You can build intelligence, 
robots aren't the same thing but related and we can do all these amazing things, right? There's also a parallel to the Tower of Babel where it looks like people are coming together and trying to build a name for themselves mm -hmm. and they're trying to build some existential value for themselves outside of God. And I think a lot of these could fall on both sides. Um, so a little parallel to draw would be um, growing up, I always imagined like the Amish didn't use technology because they thought it was like the devil or the Antichrist or something. And I don't know a ton, but learned more that they actually very critically looked at the effect that they thought electricity was gonna have on their world. And they looked for things that were deeply valuable to them, like human connection and hard work. And they said, if electricity is gonna jeopardize these things, we'll reject them. Mm. And so it's gonna be hard to reject some of these technologies if you're gonna live in today's world. Um, but flipping it on its head and saying, what are the eternal things? Like, what are the, the kingdom-minded things? And if AI or technologies or your phone or YouTube doesn't serve those things, being willing to reject them and looking different because of it is like, it would be awesome if we were more willing to do that. So. Yeah, um, we, <clears throat> let's see, I talked about in our, we had a parenting and technology class and one of the things I said is that if you are choosing to limit technology in your life or in your kid's life, you are probably signing up for a harder life. Uh, because what technology does by default is it makes things easier. Um, and yet, we can't forget that signing up for a harder life is one of the things that God uses to form us as his people. And so we should be open to and looking for those things. And then the question is, how do you know what things I should sign up? Like, does that mean I shouldn't have a thermostat in my home? That's technology, right? Like, does that mean like, like wood-burning stoves? And, you know, are we going to be Amish? You know, may maybe. Maybe that's what God is calling you to, but um, if, you know, one way I, I have people think about this is like, if you can think about a set of values, gospel values that you think would kind of mandate the way that you live your life and you want your family to kind of be focused on, um, those kinds of things are the ways you answer these questions. There's no way to answer this question if it's a question of numbers, right? If it's a question of how much or how little, there's no way to answer it because like you guys have all said, like these, it's different for all people and, and God wires and gifts people differently. But if you go, this is, this is keeping me from being this kind of person that I know that I'm called to be, or this is enabling me to be this kind of person that I know that I'm called to be, then we should be willing to reject or embrace freely um, to the glory of God. So, okay, can we give these guys a hand, please? Thank you. Uh, thank you guys for taking time. We, you know, we did plan till nine, so we'll all stick around. If you guys want to chat with any of these people in, in uh, directly, then they'll be here. And thanks for joining us, and we'll see you tomorrow morning.